We are in week 24 of Romans. Um, again, we took the summer off, off uh, from, uh, took a break from Romans and did a different series, but we are back into Romans. And so um, we're kind of at a, at a time now where, where the, the, the story is gonna, the, 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 the tone, the tenor of the book of Romans is gonna really shift. And so if you're new to hope, you're checking out hope, that's great. You didn't, you, you, yeah, obviously you missed 23 sermons, but um, hopefully we're just going to recap real quick here and, uh, and get us back up to speed. And so when we look at chapters one through three, the apostle Paul, which is what we looked at last uh, in the spring, and, and, and what he's going to do in one through three is just going to say, uh, hey, those Gentile dogs, right? Everybody who's not Jewish, they're all really bad people. N- let, me, let me outline, let me show you all the sins that these dirty Gentiles have done. And, and we're, our sins are all over that page, every single one of us. But then he's going to shift it and he's going to say you, but also you, those Jewish readers in Rome, those Jewish Christians that are now in Rome at this church, he's saying, but you also are sinners, that everybody has fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone is doomed. But here's the gospel. The gospel is by faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your upbringing, regardless of, uh, of, of how uh, educated you are or anything like that. The ground, foot of the ground of the cross is equal and it's flat and we all have equal access to the grace through faith in Christ. And that's what he's going to do. And then he's going to shift it now where we've been. We looked at a couple weeks at chapter four. And specifically, he's going to go back to Father Abraham. Hey, remember Father Abraham, Father Abraham. He was this great, this great hero of the faith. And, and then when you go back and you look at Abraham, you're like, ah, was he though? Was he a great man of faith or did he have faith in what Abraham, what he is and his object of his faith being God and the promises that God makes? Because he's going to make some horrible mistakes horrible sins and lack of faith. But when he does put his faith in God, you see the object of him. And the author, what Paul is doing here in Romans is saying, the whole point of this is that Paul or Abraham is uh, counted as righteous. He's redeemed before the law is even given to him. So how can we be saved by obeying the laws? How can we be saved by being a good person when Father Abraham didn't even have the laws? All right, that's his whole argument. And so then he's going to shift it now. Um, I do have a little little trivia, maybe, uh, a little quiz. Does anyone have any idea who this young, strapping gentleman is? Any ideas? Any educated guesses? Huh? No, not Billy Graham. It actually, it actually is pretty good. It does look like Billy Graham, but no. Uh, same era, I guess. Uh, this is Curly Lambeau. Anyone have any idea who that is? Uh, Green Bay Packer, uh, Lambeau Field, uh, named after this guy. So this guy, uh, in, in light of NFL kickoff weekend, and the, and the Packers are going to destroy the Chicago Bears uh, today. Um, in light of all that, I, there's a reason for this, not just to sneak in the Packers, I promise. Curly Lambeau, uh, he was one of the winningest coaches of, of all time, won six championships, but it was before the Super Bowl era, so they don't really count it. Uh, but he started the Green Bay Packers. He was a young guy, and he was actually playing running back, maybe fullback, at Notre Dame, and he got a really bad case of the tonsillitis, and he had to go home to Green Bay, and while he was home, he was like, hey, I'm going to start a professional football team, 
And he did. And it stuck since 1919. Uh, here, here we are today, right? Uh, because of this guy. And so, which is wild. He never went back to college. He was like, hey, I got my own thing going here in Green Bay. Uh, he worked at a packing company uh, there in Green Bay. And there you go, Green Bay Packers. There it is. Um, and uh, it's always funny, the AI right now, if you guys have seen a lot of the, the AI images, a lot of people will say, um, can you show me like AI mascots, um, you know, in the form of like a military, you know? And so you've got the, all these crazy things and the Packers, there's never one for the Packers. Like what, what is AI going to do with that? Uh, that's not a mascot. No, it's not. Anyways, here's why I bring up Curly Lambeau. Curly Lambeau had this unique thing. It's not really a thing anymore, at least not in the professional realm, that he was a player coach or a coach player, that he was the coach of the Green Bay Packers. And then when he was like, you know what, forget it. <laughs> you guys can't do it. I'll do it myself, right? Not, I don't know. That's probably wasn't his attitude, right? But that's what he was. he was. He was paid as a coach and he was also paid as a player, that he coached the team. Uh, he led them to many championships and also led on the field, that he did that. And we're gonna see in this passage today, which I know there's gonna be a weird connection here, but we're gonna see Jesus, who's the coach. We're gonna see Jesus, who is the author, the creator of this whole thing, write himself into the story and say, you guys can't do it on your own. I'm the only one who can do it. And he is a player coach. And so this week's sermon, Romans chapter five, we're going to specifically be looking at verses one through 11. And the title of this sermon is called Implications of Our Justification. And you're just going to, it's so obvious the tone that shifts here from the Apostle Paul. Martin Luther says this, the apostle speaks as one who is extremely happy and full of joy. Uh, another comment, uh, commentary, uh, comment, uh, what am I, another smart old dead guy said, uh, Franz Liedhardt said this, it is now the believer who is speaking. In fact, we might almost say singing. And so he's going to start off by saying now, therefore, right? And we, we've talked about this. It's actually been a while since we've seen the word therefore in this book. But when every time the Apostle Paul uses the word therefore, right, you ask the question, right, kind of kindergarten level of like, well, if you, every time you see a therefore, you have to ask, what is it there for? All right, and, and so we're not needed, we don't need to do that because I just kind of recapped. There's a huge shift here in thought. He said, we've all been saved by grace. We've all been justified by faith. He's going to say that right here. Therefore, right, there's no law. We're not saved by the law. We're not saved by good works. We're saved, justified by faith. We're saved by faith. He says, therefore, right? There's implications now of this, right? How shall we live? What, what is gonna happen in me, in my heart, in my soul, in my mind that's gonna shift me from being just trying to strive to be a good person to actually being at peace with God? There's a shift here. He says, therefore, since, and now he's gonna use the language, not they and not you, he's now gonna shift and he's gonna say, we, now, again, he's writing to the church in Rome, or the churches in Rome. It was written to them, but it's written for us. And we can just as easily read ourselves into this passage. He's writing to the New Testament church. He's writing to anybody who has been justified by faith. We, the collective group, therefore, since we have been justified by faith and justified, right? It's a fancy word or a big word, right? It simply means that we have been declared innocent. That every single human being who was in the category of in chapter, chapter uh, verse chapter, chapter three, 
23 that we have fallen short of the glory of God. We are sinners and we have fallen short. We cannot get good enough. We can't be good enough. We can't work hard enough. We have fallen short of God's glory. He says, I declare you innocent. All charges that have been brought against you have been completely dropped. You're innocent, you're free. We've been justified and how are we justified? It's by faith, not by works. Douglas Moo here says this, while Paul has a place for future aspect of justification in this context, especially verse nine, he focuses on a past definitive declaration of justification. He's saying, right, there was a time we were declared innocent, declared just, declared right in our standing before God. God's initial justifying act confers in the believer a new status, right? We're gonna look at this later, that there's a this, there's this change, this realm that has changed, right? We take off our old robes, we put on new robes. It's not just the door we walk through, it's a path we walk on a daily basis. It's a new status. But what are the implications of this status for the believer living between the times? Caught in the already not yet tension of inaugurated eschatology. All right, again, big words. Eschatology just means end times, the future. All right, already not yet is this idea that Jesus already died for our sins. We are saints, as, the, as Luther would call it. We're saints and sinners that Jesus died for our sins, past, present, future, we've been justified, we've been declared righteous, but we're not all the way to the end when Jesus makes everything right. We're in this tension here. We're in between the times of the already and not yet. And so Paul here is gonna take that as he says here, it is this question that Paul takes up in this section in chapters five through eight as a whole. He's saying, how do we live? Right? If I've been declared righteous, and I'm good, doesn't that mean I can just go do whatever I want? Well, the Apostle Paul is gonna say that. He's gonna talk about that. There's arguments that might pop into your mind to say, well, if I'm justified, what are the implications of that? And he's gonna start here on the positive side of these implications. And so we're just gonna look at four different implications in this text. Number one, of an implication of our justification of our, our, our innocence, our declared innocence, is peace. And it's not just any kind of peace. We've talked about this since day one, that the apostle Paul is trying to answer a really big question. And it's this question, how can a just God allow anyone in his presence, right? He's not trying to answer the question, how can a loving God allow anyone into hell? Paul doesn't even try to answer that question. He says for the first three chapters, we're all, we all should be going to hell. We, that, that's, that, that's the norm. Every human being has committed treason against God. That's our, that's our just status quo is hell. How is it possible that a just God can allow anyone into his presence? That's the question. And here is where the answer comes. Right here in this passage, he finally is now gonna get to that. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. How is it that a just God can allow anyone into his presence? Through the blood of Jesus, through his own blood, by faith. That is how a just God can allow someone into his presence. This isn't a modern idea of peace that we gain, this peace with God. It's not just like clearing our mind, emptiness, you know, all that. that uh, I have a lot of peace about the decision I just made. 
Matter of fact, this is actually the word that's translated in the Old, uh, the Old Testament, the, the Greek New Testament called the Septuagint. It's the same word there for shalom. It's this idea of prosperity and salvation, that we have peace with God. We have harmony with God in that aspect, again, through Jesus. And I would imagine there are people like myself who say, I want that peace with God. I, I want that prosperity with God. I want a good relationship with God. And again, Paul is saying the only way you can be in his presence is through Jesus Christ. So not only do we have peace, but we are granted access. It says this in verse two, through him we have also obtained, through him, who's that? Through Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It's interesting in this verse, when you really look at it and start trying to parse it out or kind of diagram it, what do we gain access to, right? What is it that we are, are, are gaining here or have access to? It's actually not God, right? You, you kind of just think as reading it through, and if you're just kind of reading through quickly, you go, oh yeah, we, we gain access to the Father as well. That's actually not what it is. We have access by faith into what? Into grace. The object of that access here is grace, we gain access and we stand, specifically is the word, in the grace of God through Christ by faith. And I want you to notice here now this shift in his tone and his tenor of this passage. There's, no even, there's not even a mention of law. In the first four chapters, he couldn't stop talking about the law. And now all of a sudden there's this shift, there's this rejoicing, there's this song. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God in the grace that we stand. We obtain access to that because of Christ. There is no law in this paragraph of praise. And again, notice this idea of standing in grace, right? It's not simply we go through this door of grace that we're now in. We, we stand, we're rooted, established in this grace. It's a realm that we now live devoid of the demands of law. There's no longer demands of law saying, do this and don't do that. And if you do that or don't do that, you're out. It's completely void of that. Again, uh, Doug Moo says this in his commentary, the glory of God, it's this last phrase he's gonna comment on here. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What does that mean? He says, the glory of God is that state of God-likeness which has been lost because of sin and which will be restored in the last day to every Christian, right? This is right now, we're in that in-between, that already not yet, we're not there yet. It's not made perfect. It's not made completely restored, but there will be a day. And, and that's what we hope for. He says, a joyful confidence in this prospect overcoming our frustration at our present failure to be all that God would want us to be should be the mark of every believer. Mu here is saying, we all feel that. We feel the guilt, we feel the shame that when we sin, we choose the sin and we choose to suffer. And we look at God and we say, man, why do I keep doing this? I'm sick of this. I wanna fight this. I wanna, I wanna be like Jesus. I wanna live like Jesus. And you, you feel that overwhelming worldly guilt and shame. 
This is the joy and the grace and the hope that we have, that someday Jesus will right all the wrongs. He will make it as if everything wrong we've ever done never existed. It's just poof, gone, because of the sacrifice that he made on our behalf. This should be the mark of every believer. He goes on by saying that we, another implication of our justification, our declaration of, of innocence is rejoicing. He says, not only that. Oh, this wrong. <laughs> but wait, there's more. Sorry, I forgot I did that. Uh, <laughs> okay, not only that. He says, not only that, right? This, if you put the period there at the end of verse two, that's great. I'm good. I've got peace. I've got access to this grace, right? And he says, but, but wait, there's more. There's more in our justification than just being declared righteous. There's more here. Much more. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. What? Right, that takes a, it takes a turn here. What are we talking about, Paul? Paul, it's supposed to be like good and happen. He's saying yes, and the joy and the, and the grace that we are, we've been given, even in the midst of our suffering, we can rejoice. Again, you've probably heard this. Joy is not happiness, right? Now, I do think Christians uh, should be happy, right? Uh, I don't think it gives us the right to just be grumpy uh, Bible thumpers or whatever, all right? That's not what we're supposed to be doing, uh, just be jerks about everything, we are supposed to be full of joy. But even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of a difficult, hard time, relationally, emotionally, spiritually, with our jobs, with our whatever, our health, we, we can be suffering, but still have joy. Why? Again, because Jesus did. It says that Jesus, like, like despised by the cross, and the shame, he looked forward to the joy that was set before him. The cross wasn't the joy. It was the victory afterwards that produces the joy and the hope that even, the, that even our Savior had, and likewise, we too. That when we're going through suffering, we can look to the end and say, I know how this whole thing ends, and that is my hope. That's my joy. We rejoice. We rejoice in this. There was a long time ago, man, probably a good, I don't know, 12, 13 years ago, probably 12. Uh, I was a pastor in Illinois, in normal Illinois. And we took, uh, it was a college pastor. And we took a bus full of college students down to the, pa the Passion Conference. Anyone ever been to the Passion Conference or heard of it? Um, it's in Atlanta. It's this big thing. It's, we go to the, the, the stadium where the Falcons play uh, or lose. And um, no, I'm kidding. They're pretty good. And um, we go to the stadium and it's filled. It's like 60, 70,000 college students. And, uh, and, and John Piper, uh, pastor, the former pastor, right, just in Minneapolis here, um, he got up there on stage and he, and I, and I will never forget it. He gave the sermon about what is at the bottom of your joy. Right? And, and what he meant by that was, he was like, when you, when you keep peeling back all the layers, when you get to the bottom of it, what's your joy? And this is why, this is what he said. Let's imagine you are um, a student, you're at school. Okay, I go back to the day when you were in school. I know some of you still are. But let's just imagine, right? You, 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 you ace a test and you come out of that and your professor sees you or just some random person in the hall and just says, hey, you seem really joyful. You seem happy. What, what are you so happy about? 
So I just passed my test, right? And so then they ask a follow-up question. Well, what is it about passing that test that makes you joyful? Well, well, it's because it's going to allow me to get my degree in good standing. Okay, well, why would getting your degree in good standing make you joyful? Well, because I want to do this thing, this occupation, and I want to be able to provide. I want to be able to help people, whatever it may be, right? And you keep boiling it down. Well, why does that make you full of joy? Why does that make you full of joy? And at the bottom of the joy, it's because someday, Jesus, I'm going to look at him face to face, and he's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. What's at the bottom of our joy? Because even when it comes to my own salvation, this was Piper's point, I remember when he was preaching this, that even when you get to the bottom of the joy, if it is because I don't want to go to hell, well, now it's selfish. Now it's about you rather than the glory of God and the finished work of Christ. But here we see not only that, there's more to peace and access of, in grace but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, gives us thick skin, if you will. And endurance produces character and character produces hope. Like that order of sequence of events that he gives here, from suffering to endurance, from endurance to character, and character produces hope. That when we suffer, it forces us to see Jesus as big and glorious. And we need that to be true. We need it to be true. I think of John the Baptist, when he's in prison, ready to get his head chopped off, he goes and he says, Jesus, are you sure you're the one? Are you really the promised Messiah? It produces hope. We have to turn our eyes on Jesus or there's no point. Get out of the suffering as fast as you possibly can. We can't rejoice in that. Lamentations chapter three, I want to just read a portion of this. This is so powerful because there are so many passages where we see someone going through intense, intense suffering, even from the hand of God. It could be Job, it could be Jesus on the cross. There's suffering happening. And the author here of Lamentations is going to say, God, you're the one doing this. Then you're going to see a shift, though, at the end of this passage. Lamentations 3, verse 1 says, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. And though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion hidden. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrow of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all people, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness and he has seeded me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and he has made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Whoa. Like that is heavy. I've been in some pretty dark places. I've never written a poem like that. 
He's going through it. And I know some of you have gone through it or are going through it. And you feel this way. And that's okay. That is an okay way to feel. But just like Paul and just like Jesus and just like the author here, he's going to continue and he's going to say, remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But I call this to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. In the midst of suffering, the hope is Jesus. The hope is that will the judge of the world not do what's right? Yes, he will. He's going to fix this. That's my hope. That is my joy. And as we look at all of the Old Testament for thousands of years, when God says he's going to do something, he does it. And when people are in the midst of, of quietness and emptiness and years and decades and centuries of silence from God, he still always shows up and shows himself faithful. Continuing in our passage in Romans, verse three, again, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts to the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Satan or the devil or Lucifer, whatever you want to call him, has been also called the accuser. The accuser of the brothers and the sisters. The, those of us who put our faith in Christ, he stands there in the presence of God like a, like a, like a what do you call it, a defense lawyer? Or what's the opposite, a prosecutor? Sure, I don't know what I'm talking about. I watched Suits once. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, right, so whatever, whatever it is that's going on, uh, he's accusing and he sees us. He knows us. He knows you. He knows our, our guilt and our shame. He knows your sins. He knows your sins. And he stands there in front of the Father, the creator of the universe, and he says, hold on a second. You're telling me what that guy did was okay? You're telling me that you want her in your presence? And Jesus, as we're going to see next week, our older brother is going to walk up to Satan's face and just say, get out of here, dude. You have nothing to do with this guy anymore. You have nothing to do with this woman. She has been set free from your sin and your bondage and your accusations. Yes, everything you said about this person is true, but I forgive them because they believe in me. They've been justified. They've been declared innocent by me, the just and the justifier, the player coach who writes himself into the story because of Jesus. There is no guilt. There is no shame. And in this hope, there is no shame. This is the hope that causes us to rejoice even in the midst of suffering. Again, because of Jesus. Verse six, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The King James, like it says, in the fullness of time, right? At the right time. And again, when you look at just history, forget the Bible, look at just the history of the world, that this would have been the right time in the right place in the right context to just to be a boiling pot for an explosion of what was going to happen with Christianity. 
that everything was going on, that, that Alexander the Great had conquered so much of the known world and forced everyone to learn Greek in their way. And then what happens? And then Jerusalem, way after Alexander the Great, now the Romans are in there and they're still speaking Greek. And Jesus comes and he dies and he starts this new movement in him as the son of God. And it spreads all throughout the world. When the time was right, Christ died for the ungodly. The Messiah is what Christ means the promised one, the one who had always been talked about to save mankind when the time was right in the fullness of time, Christ died for the ungodly, for everybody. We are not the good guy in the story. Verse seven, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do we get that when we were, at, when we were enemies with God, sinners, when we are given Christ the bird, he's like, I'm going to die for you. And as he's on the cross, right, doesn't he say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He dies for us because he loves us. While we were still sinners, my boys love uh, uh, Jungle Book. And we recently watched this and uh, Pagira is the uh, panther here. And I, and I didn't remember this. I just noticed that this, we watched a couple of days ago or a week ago so or something like that. And there's this scene, this big fight scene between uh, Baloo. Is it Baloo or is it Blue? Does anyone know? Baloo? Baloo. Okay. <laughs> Baloo fights uh, Shere Khan. When I was in kindergarten, I had a girl in my class, um, Sierra, who would crawl around saying she had Shere Khan in her tummy and she would bite people. Um, <laughs> Good times. That's beside the point. Catch the rabbit. What's the rabbit? The rabbit is, there's this huge fight between Baloo and, and Shere Khan, and they fight, right? And, there's, and, and, and Baloo is, is just beat up. He's laying on the ground, and they think he's dead. Mowgli and, and Pagira think he's dead. And Pagira breaks out into this, this eulogy, you know, this, uh, uh, what do you call it? This funeral for Baloo, and he quotes Jesus. <laughs> Good old liberal Disney quoting Jesus um, says this in John chapter 15. He quotes, and Pagira says this over Baloo's dead, seemingly dead body. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Well, in the wisdom of Pagira, this is true. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 15. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And in the context of Romans, we're not his friends, we're his enemies. We're the ungodly, we're the unlovable, we're the shameful, we're the guilty. And he says, no, but I call you my friends and I declare you righteous. I declare you my brother, I declare you my sister. Sit down at my table and eat with me. That's Jesus and that's the love, greater love. There's no one than this. The last point here, implications of our justification, we see salvation. He says, since therefore, right, in light of all that, all these implications of our justification, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Right? It's not just, hey, uh, let's, let's go from, from enemies to, to, to good guys or, or you are guilty and you're declared free, right? When a judge looks over somebody who might be guilty of, let's say, a parking ticket or something, and he says, you know what? It's no big deal. I declare you innocent. You're free. 
go ahead, you're free to go. They don't become best buds, right? He doesn't invite him over to his house and they start eating a meal together. He, this is what Jesus does. He could have just said, hey, you're declared righteous now, get out and don't ever come back. Don't do it again. Uh-uh-uh. He says, come eat with me, dine with me. Be my son, be my daughter. That is, that is the how much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God, the just judge who could have just destroyed us in that moment. He says, for if while we were, we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, made right, shall we be saved by his life. In light of football, this was just the first image I found uh, when I Googled it. Actually, it was Yahoo. Google quit working on my computer for some reason. So this was the first Yahoo image I could find of football, just some people playing football. Now remember, all analogies break down. So just, just follow with me here. Imagine, if you will, that you're playing football for, in this category, maybe the Cowboys. And the coach of the New York Giants sees you out on the field just absolutely getting trashed. I mean, completely getting destroyed. And his, uh, his co-head coaches come up to him. There's three of them, head coaches together. And they say, hey, I think that we should go ask that player from, from the Cowboys to, to join our team in the Giants. And one of them says, well, we can't do that. Only a player can do that. Only a player can invite another player to change teams. He says, yeah, okay, that makes sense. So one of them says, I'll be the player coach. I'll, I'll, I'll put the pads on. I'll get into the game. And he gets into the game and he says, you, you are awful. You are really bad at football. I want you to join my team so I can make you better. And we do, yeah, okay, cool. And we go to the sideline. We, we run to the other side. We put on our jersey. We change our team. We go become the, the New York Giants. And he teaches us and he shows us how he would play. And he leads by example so that we can be a better player. You see where the analogy went there? That's Jesus. He's the ultimate player coach, right? He writes himself into the story. He says, you are awful. Let, let me call you. Let me help you. Let me redeem you. And then he says, more than that. But wait, there's more. That one I remembered. That time I remembered that one. But more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him, through whom we now have received reconciliation, right? Again, just as Luther said at the beginning and lean heart, there's, there's just this, this chorus of praise. He ends it with just saying, more than this. Like we, we have all these implications of our justification of peace, access through grace, this rejoicing in our suffering and our salvation by his blood. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We have been made right in our standing with God to his praise and honor and glory forever and ever. And so just simply in our application, we can now rejoice in the midst of our suffering. We can rejoice in the peace that we have with God, that his wrath, we don't need to fear his wrath anymore. There's no longer that guilt and the shame I have access because I stand on this grace and I can approach his throne of grace that he so easily wants to just lavish us with. And salvation. He calls us brothers and sisters and asks us to join his presence. He didn't have to do that. 
And so it moves us to rejoice and to worship and thank God for the freedom that he offers those who put their faith in him, their belief in him, void, totally devoid of the law. We're gonna have communion like we do every week. Angel's gonna come back up and just play a couple uh, hymns quietly on the, on the piano. And as you see fit, I would invite you to grab these elements, the bread that represents the body of Christ that was broken for us, the juice that represents his blood that was shed for us. There's nothing uh, magical about these. These don't wash your sins away. Your sins, as, as stated in this passage, were already declared forgiven thousands of years ago. We take these to remember the finished work of Christ in the cross, his blood and his body that was broken for us. You don't need to be a member of this church or any church. This could be your first time going to church. But if you say, yes, that's the kind of, of, of person, that's the savior that I want to follow. That's a player coach that, that I want to follow. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to walk in my shoes and yet still died for me, still loves me, still calls me to dine with him. Yeah, that guy, I want to follow that guy. Then I would love for you to take these elements with us. Um, and so again, uh, Angel, just play a couple of hymns. And so just feel uh, as you feel fit. Uh, if you pray and repent, confess corporately, privately, uh, we'd love for you to partake of these elements, uh, this meal of remembrance of our Savior and his finished work on the cross. Let me pray, and then Angela will uh, play some songs for us. Heavenly Father, it is only by your mercy and your grace that I can call you Father that I get to corporately in front of my friends and my peers call you Father. We didn't always get to do that as human beings, but because of the finished work of your son, of the Messiah, of the promised Christ, and his ultimate sacrifice of laying down his life and him suffering in our stead, that we can approach you that your wrath has been poured out on your son rather than us who deserve it. So God, as we take these elements, would we rejoice in your finished work? Would we find peace, rest, salvation, prosperity in you? Would we stand firm on your grace? Would we walk that path of grace rather than guilt and shame and know that we have complete salvation through your son. We love you, and it's in his name of Jesus that I pray to you. Amen.